Um, Our first reading tonight comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. And if you're reading along in one of the Bibles in the pews, it's on page 939. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake so that grace as it extends to more and more people may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Our second reading tonight comes from Mark chapter 4 verses 30 to 32 and that's on page 816 mark 4 30 to 32 jesus also said with what can we compare the kingdom of god or what parable will we use for it it is like a mustard seed which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is the word of the Lord. If you heard us last week, uh, you'll know that we began our uh, mini-series on uh, within the broader sweep of Paul's second uh, letter to the church in Corinth and uh, we talked about standing in the gap. Uh, The gap, that is, between uh, hope and experience between desire and reality. That gap between expectation, how you think things ought to be, and how things actually turn out. And we saw that the apostle himself is smack bang in the middle of the gap. Uh, he is uh, suffering. He's experiencing an affliction. What he what he writes about uh, in chapter one of uh, two Corinthians that he was utterly unbearably crushed, uh, so much so that he despaired of life itself. I mean, the the guy knows what it is to live somewhere in the middle between hope and experience. And when that's how things are for you, when you're in the gap, the nearly overwhelming temptation is to try to collapse it. To either become uh, pouting and brittle and demand that reality conforms to your experience. People should be better. They should treat me nicer. 
or go the other way to lower standards and hopes for yourselves, uh, yourself and others and eventually become inward-looking and cynical. But we saw that there's an alternative. Now, the alternative is to not lose heart. That's how Paul describes it uh, at the beginning of chapter 1, and he repeats it again today. To not lose heart. And, and the, the truth is that if, if you understand that, if you, if you make the courageous decision that you're going to stand in the gap, that you're not going to lose heart... then you're actually there for decades. That's how life is. That's how life is. You need to be prepared. But what would it be to flourish in the gap? Where resilience is not just about managing to hang on with grim determination, but is actually about growing and deepening and maturing into a richer and more substantial person year after year. Because that what, that's what Paul seems to be saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see the remarkable statement at the end of the chapter that sums up what he's saying. Listen to this again. So we do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. The Apostle carries a load that, frankly, you and I can barely imagine, of relational pressure, of physical suffering and deprivation, of personal weakness and fragility. You think you've got problems? You think life's tough for you? I mean, that, that may be right. But the truth is, it's, it's not in the same league as what the Apostle has been experiencing. What he refers to is his outer nature, that is, that his human being, his human nature that is tied to this age, to this eon, is wasting away. You can almost hear the weariness in his voice, don't you think? And yet at precisely the same time, and in fact he's going to go on to say, and we'll look at this later on, not just at the same time, because of that, his inner nature, that part of him which has already been renewed by the light of new creation which God has shined into his heart, that inner nature is being renewed day by day, day in and day out. Do you see what the Apostle is saying? saying the harder and more difficult life gets for him, the more problems he has, the better, the stronger, the clearer, the brighter person he becomes. And it, it, I mean, you read that and you go, how? How can that be the case? How can life being tough like that do this to him? And, and the answer is in how he frames it, how, how he understands, how he comprehends, how he interacts with, how he engages, how he responds how he frames it. And you see that there, there are three crucial things that he describes here for us about how he frames this experience. He knows that his experience of weakness and fragility has a purpose, that it conforms to a pattern, and that it constitutes a preparation. 
purpose, pattern, preparation. And when you frame it like that, then your outer nature being something that's just wasting away means that your inner nature can actually be renewed day by day. All right, first then, the purpose. Uh, Paul is very aware of the counterintuitive point that he's trying to make to uh, the Corinthians. Uh, On the one hand, uh, the Apostle is absolutely exultant about the uh, extent of God's power for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have justification, not condemnation. In Jesus Christ, we have life, not death. In Jesus Christ, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, who's at work in our hearts, uh, transforming us from one degree of glory to another, becoming more and more like the living and true God, fulfilling the destiny for which you were created to be an image bearer of God, to look like Him in your character. That's the power of the gospel, which Paul delivers to people, you see. And on the other hand, there is the contrast with the agent that God has chosen to use to bring this incredible, transforming, life-changing power. Paul, sickly, weak, unimposing, beaten up, suffering. Listen to how the Apostle describes the course of his life. This is from chapter 6. Uh, verse 4, um, and he's writing about his CV. I mean, how it had, if you ever go for a job, uh, you, you know, I mean, I presume we go for a job at some point, uh, you'll, you'll submit a CV. You'll, you'll, you'll commend yourself to the people who are deciding who gets the job. And here's Paul commending himself. As servants of God, we've commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments. The guy's an ex-con, right? I mean, I don't know, you've, you ever met people who get released from jail? Trust them like that, don't you? Riots, lay, he, the guy's a, a, an instigator of riots. Love to have them over for dinner, yeah? Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. Or again, this is in chapter 11 of uh, 2 Corinthians, comparing his credentials with the uh, new leaders in town, the so-called super apostles. He says, are they ministers of Christ? And he's kind of, he's ranting at this point. He says, I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. So how do you go about demonstrating that you're a better minister of Christ? Ready? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings. I mean, I, you know, I've only been flogged nuns, actually, for the gospel. Not one time. Countless floggings, often near death. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning, it was left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, uh, journeys were not like taking a train is now. Journeys meant traveling in dangerous spots between safe spots. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry, thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. Here's obviously a guy who's going to change the world. It's pathetic, isn't it? 
That's what the apostle's saying. And besides other things, I'm under the daily pressure. Be, uh, I'm under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I'm not weak. And Paul's aware of the contrast between what it is he ministers and who he is as a minister. And he has an image to describe it. And the image is, we have this treasure in clay jars. That's what he says. Uh, what, what, what does he mean by clay jar? Clay jar is the styrofoam cup of the ancient world. Uh, we don't really have drinks at the evening uh, congregation much after uh, the service. And in the morning service, it didn't work at all, this illustration, because they use ceramic cups and you can't chuck them away. Uh, but at the 10 o'clock congregation, this was a perfect illustration because they all have cups of coffee afterwards, you know, moderate quality. Um, and and you, get your, you get your cardboard cup and you drink your coffee, beautiful substance as it is, sort of. And then once you've finished, as you're about to leave, what do you do? You just chuck it in the recycling. You just chuck it. You see what the Apostle's saying? He says, I'm a styrofoam cup bearing this incredible treasure of the gospel. Feeble, unimpressive, disposable me. Glorious gospel of Christ. And you can see how he sort of goes on to explain it. He says he's afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. Far from being an all-conquering, victorious apostle. In fact, he, he ends chapter 11, you know, that list that I began with, he ends with his highest boast. He, he describes how he get, got uh, let down a wall uh, in Damascus, escaping from some people who were trying to kill him. And why is this his highest boast? It's because uh, the greatest military honour in the ancient world, uh, the, the Victoria Cross of, uh, for an ancient um, um, soldier, uh, was called the Corona Muralis, the, the the crown of the wall. And the corona muralis was given to the soldier who was first up the wall in the heat of battle, you know, because there'd be all the guys standing up the top. And the, but the first one up the wall, almost always killed, of course, the first one up the wall was called, uh, was given the Victoria Cross of the, of the ancient world. And so what's Paul's great boast? He gets let down a wall. He, he, he's got nothing. He is the opposite of a hero, he is a supreme loser. And the point is, you see, it has to be this way. That's what the Apostle's saying. It has to be this way. It's not accidental, it's essential. You see what he writes? This is how it is, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. If it weren't this way, if it was the case that Paul skipped from one glorious power encounter to the next unscathed by life, never getting the feet of his sandals dirty from the dust that he walked through, then that would confuse matters. Perhaps it was just that Paul was one of those rare, outstanding people for whom everything goes right. Do you know, do you know these people? These kind of people that everything goes right for them uh, starting with their beautiful genetics and inherited wealth, their sunny disposition and their social ease, all the way through to how the toast always lands jam side up. 
You may, know, you may be one of those people, in which case, you know, good luck to you. That's great. It's just that it's so easy to attribute the success in their life to their own personal capacity, but no one's going to make that mistake with Paul. No, his weakness, he says, has a significant divine purpose to leave not one skerrick of doubt to make it absolutely clear that the power of God's transforming grace is not something that he just musters up. It comes from God. And when that is the lens through which you look at your weakness, it means you don't just survive in the gap. You can thrive and be renewed inwardly day by day. Well, that's the first uh, aspect uh, of the way Paul frames his experience. But there's a second, I'd suggest even deeper lens that he looks through. Um, He knows that his own constant experience of weakness conforms to a pattern. He goes on in verse 10 and says, uh, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we're always being giving up, given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, it's very important to see what the apostle is uh, doing here. He interprets his own experience of his ministry in terms of Jesus' experience of his ministry, and especially the cross. His own weakness and frailty and humiliation as he goes about spreading the knowledge of God is a kind of repeat of the dying of Jesus, which he carries about with him. Do you see the significance of of what he's saying? Um, It has to be like this for him because it was like this for Jesus. This is the way that God does things in a broken world. Uh, The fact is that the only way to overcome evil is with good. Uh, Repaying evil with evil, responding to force with force, meeting harsh words with harsh words, meeting bitter heart with bitter heart, fighting fire with fire. All it does is make for more fire. Only goodness and mercy and grace can really quench the fires of hatred and violence and indifference. And in our world, that will inevitably mean the cross. Sacrifice and suffering and weakness. It was that way for Jesus. It was therefore that way for Paul. And the truth is that it will be that way for us as well. It can't be any other way. Not if it's in the footsteps of the crucified Christ that we walk. Now, of course, that's only half uh, the story. In the same way, it was only half the story for Jesus because although the apostle is afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, at the same time, he says he's not crushed. He's not pushed all the way to the edge. He's not driven all the way to despair. Uh, He's not forsaken. He's not destroyed. In other words, at the very same time that he carries around in his body the dying of Jesus, he also carries around the 
living of Jesus, the life of Jesus is made visible precisely in the fact that he keeps on going, that he doesn't give up, that he doesn't fail. What's more, this conformity to Christ is not just a present thing, although it is a present thing, but it also reaches into the future. You see, he knows, verse 14, that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will raise him also with Christ. And not just him, but the Corinthians as well. And bring everyone, all of them, into the presence of Jesus in final vindication and joy. You see what the apostles are saying? Death and resurrection, dying and living, weakness and suffering, glory and triumph. That is the way of Jesus Christ. Not, not one or the other, but both together at the same time. After all, where is the glory of God seen? It's seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And where did the apostles see the face of Jesus Christ? On the Damascus Road. And why was it so overwhelming to the apostle? Because it was the face of the crucified one. A face twisted and contorted in the agony of death. And yet precisely this one who was the anointed and vindicated Messiah of God. Do you hear it? The glory of God and crushing death by crucifixion go together. They did in Jesus, they did in Paul, and they will in everyone who's united to Christ. Do, do you see how that changes everything? That completely reframes your experience of difficulties and hardships and pains and afflictions. I mean, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? Christians ought to be the most prepared for hard times in this life. We follow a crucified Messiah. We know that this is how it goes in a broken world like this. And we can be prepared. We know how to frame it. We're not thrown by it. We don't lash out as a result of it. And so as you, you begin to kind of allow this text to, to marinate into your soul, to just form and shape and call you to a repentance and deeper faith. Cast your mind over the texture of difficulties and weakness and disappointments for yourself at the moment. Might be the tiny inconveniences of incompetence, like having a poor memory, or, or the physical inconveniences, like the fact that you get a cold every time that the seasons change. All the way through to the deep pains, the deep, deep soul pains of serving others till it hurts, of forgiving those who've wronged you again and again and again, taking into yourself the pain of that wrong. And of course, ultimately, it will be the bodily breakdown that will get every single one of us in the end. Will you hear your apostle saying to you, you are never more like Jesus. You are never more being conformed to Jesus than when you are weak 
and frail and being poured out and you stand. Which leads to the third lens then that the Apostle uses to reframe his experience because he doesn't do this just through gritted teeth. He knows, thirdly, that weakness constitutes a preparation. You see it in verses 17 and 18. Uh, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look at, uh, not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Now, the reason I read out those sections from chapter 6 and chapter 11, right, which describe Paul's experience, is because that means we now have a bit of a sense of kind of the significance of what he says when he says, ready? I mean, could you imagine describing what he's described as this slight momentary affliction, this mosquito bite? Seriously? I mean, one beating would probably do me in let alone countless, this slight momentary affliction. And you can only say something like that in comparison, and if the only comparison you have is in this life, then what the Apostle says will seem absurd, but of course, that's not his point of reference. Rather, rather it's the eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, which can't be seen with the eyes, but is seen by faith. That which is not temporary, but which is eternal. What is that? What is the eternal weight of glory beyond all measure? Uh, C.S. Lewis has a really outstanding sermon. It's simply called The Weight of Glory. Uh, you, you think sermons here are heavy? That's nothing. on This sermon you've got to hear about, I think, 28 times before you'll get it. Uh, it's worth reading and rereading. You can, uh, you can find it pretty easily. And he digs into what this glory is that's in store for us. What is this eternal weight of glory? And he characterizes it in two aspects. Uh, on the one hand, he says it's to do, glory is about fame, fame in the sense of being uh, loved and accepted. And he writes this The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us. Any of us who really chooses shall find approval, shall please God. To to please God, he says, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in a son. It seems impossible a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. The weight of glory that you will be so accepted and cherished by God that you will constitute, don't you love this? An ingredient in the divine happiness. You, even more laughable, me, Lewis says there's a second aspect of glory, which is to do with sort of light and beauty. And he writes like this, he says, We do not want merely to see beauty, 
God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. He goes on, at present we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather the greater glory, of which nature is only the first sketch. Do you, do you, do you have a sense of what Lewis is talking about? The magnificent beauty of the world, which is always outside you and yet which speaks to you at times. Does it not? Have you not seen this? the sunrise, the Megalong Valley. And the weight of glory is that that beauty will pass into your very soul. Actually, the beauty of all eternity, of which the created beauty is just its first sketch. And you will be like that. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying two things. He says, when you have a sense of this weight of glory and you can compare even the beatings and imprisonments and sicknesses that he's described, then it will make sense to say that they are slight and momentary. But notice, second, actually, the, the Apostle's not simply making a bare comparison here. He's actually saying something even more radical than that. Namely, that the afflictions of this life, as extreme as they might be for Paul, even if they are slight and momentary when held up and compared to glory, those slight momentary afflictions are actually what prepares us for glory. They make us ready to bear its weight. And they do that in two ways. You see, what suffering, what pain, what weakness does to you is it forges in you the substance of character that means you can bear the weight of glory when you're brought to it. Don't you find this, at least in potential, that when you're in the midst of affliction, then your scaffolding is down. Uh, all the kind of artificial things around you in your life that keep you good when your heart's not quite in it, when you're suffering, those things all disappear. And what happens then is that your sins are surfaced. They're brought up to the surface. The selfishness and meanness and grumpiness the demandingness, 
the idols of our hearts. It all comes up to the surface when you're in pain. And more than at any other time, you can know yourself. You can see yourself. And you can do deep soul work. Deep repentance. Turning from self to God so that your character is refined and softened and turned outward to God and to others. So on the one hand, what how suffering, how weakness prepares us for glory is that it forges our character. But second, it evokes in us a deep and abiding hunger. You see, isn't it true that in some ways, for some people at least, it's possible to forget that you live in a fallen world, especially if you stay isolated and insulated enough from other people. It's possible to enjoy a good job and a good family and good friends and good movies and raise good kids and send them to good schools. And you can forget the truth, the reality. You can start to believe what your eyes tell you. And Paul says that his afflictions actually open his mind to the reality of this world, that it's a fallen, broken, deeply alienated from God kind of place. And so it whets his appetite. It sharpens his hunger. And knowing that Weakness constitutes a preparation like this means that the apostle doesn't lose heart. He doesn't give up. He doesn't let his head drop. In fact, it's, it's absolutely the opposite. Right in the middle of his afflictions, as his outer nature is wasting away, his inner nature is being renewed day in and day out. He's getting stronger and clearer and more gentle and more faithful and more peaceful and more truthful and more honouring of God and of others right there in the gap. That is the power of a resurrecting God at work in a human heart. Let's uh, draw these threads together. Um, what the Apostle Paul is doing is inviting us to tell ourselves a different story, to inhabit a different narrative. You see, what is the story that we normally tell ourselves about weakness and suffering? What's the, what's the narrative that our culture gives us in our secular world? Uh, the only story that uh, place for suffering in our secular culture's narrative is that it's a catastrophe. When something, when something goes wrong with your life, and if it, if it stays there for a long time, what our secular culture has to say is that it is a meaningless and worthless departure from the script uh, which is given to us, which is to be as happy and as fulfilled and as experience-rich as you can possibly be, squeezing as much juice from this life as you can manage. That's your job. That's the story. It's why, as I say before, as a culture, we are so utterly unequipped to deal with the realities of weakness and pain and affliction. 
and the apostle is inviting us to tell ourselves a different story. Now, uh, my wife Katrina is away this weekend. Uh, she's at a seminar uh, which goes over the course of a whole year. It's got four particular weekends away uh, for veterinary clinic owners. She's a veterinarian uh, and they're, all tr they're trying to improve their businesses. And they keep being told to tell themselves uh, different stories as well. Okay, so here's, here's the story that uh, they get. Um, uh, what you accept, expect. Okay, that's kind of cute, isn't it? What you accept, ex in, in other words, if you accept bad behavior uh, from your vet nurses, then expect bad behavior from your vet nurses. Which actually, when I thought about it, I could kind of apply pretty well to a church too, couldn't it actually? Or here's another one. Uh, the universe rewards clarity. Actually, I've got another couple. She sent me an email. It's down here. These are just too good to miss. Ready? Here we go. Never wish your life were easier. Wish that you were better. Okay? Or, you always get your primary intention. Okay, ready? My words become my experience. It's tosh. It's total freaking nonsense, isn't it? This is just mere positive thinking. It's a story that has no basis in reality. Friends, we don't have positive thinking. This is not just tell yourself some story to make yourself feel good. Positive thinking will never stand in the face of suffering and pain and death. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Our narrative, our story, is written in the outstretched arms and the empty tomb. And that means it's not wishful thinking, it's not even close to wishful thinking, it's a spiritual reality written in the facts of history with enormous power that whatever, whatever slight momentary affliction you're experiencing, in the sovereign grace of God, if you reframe it like this, it can prepare you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Amen.